0: Greetings, everybody, and welcome to episode five of the American Shoreline Podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Peter, it feels great to be here today. Another great week on the American Shoreline.
1: It does, Tyler. I really want to uh, tell you how excited I am to be doing the fifth show, and for the guests today, we're here to introduce Derek Rockbank, who is the host of the ASPN show, the Capital Beach Podcast. It's going to be a great show, and we're really looking forward to hearing what Derek is planning for that show. Um, capital Beach, originating from the, the great city of Washington D.C., our nation's capital. A busy place today, Derek. I
2: understand. Yeah, there's some there's some sort of hearings and votes going on in the past day or two, <laughs> right.
1: which is not going to be the topic of your show. I know, but. Uh, before we jump into it, Derek, I think uh, we, get, we have a chance today to personally thank you for your sponsorship of ASPN. Uh, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association is our founding sponsor, and we are so happy to have you guys behind us, uh, ASBPA, the national organization of the American Shoreline. Uh, tell us about ASBPA, Derek, and what you do for that
2: organization. Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, uh, I'm the executive director of American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. Um, We've been around for a little over 90 years. Uh, We're an association of coastal practitioners. We are the uh, people who build, maintain, and manage our nation's beaches. So the industry ranging from engineering to dredging, uh, coastal managers, um, communities ranging from small beach towns like Folly Beach, South Carolina, to uh, Los Angeles County Beaches and Harbors, which manages some of the most iconic beaches in the world, Um, and then also academics and researchers. So we represent those people that build and maintain the beaches that we all love, and we do both science and policy. I'm based here in Washington, D.C., and lead our government affairs effort, and we'll get into that, I guess, a little bit on on the Capitol Beach and and tell you a bit more about what what I do on the uh, government affairs front coming up later in this episode, Um, but we are thrilled to be supporting and sponsoring, um, sponsoring the podcast. Uh, this is a a great opportunity to communicate with coastal stakeholders across the country. So, uh,
0: thrilled you're doing it Peter and Tyler and and look forward to being part of it. Listen, Derek, uh, I speak for both of us, uh, when I say that we are, uh, grateful, uh, to be collaborating with you. And of course, uh, the conference is coming up Uh, Why don't you uh, give us a quick pitch on why why everybody should be headed to this conference? We'll we'll certainly be there.
2: Yeah, um, definitely. So uh, ASBPA's National Coastal Conference is coming up October 30th to November 2nd. Uh, It's going to be in Galveston, Texas. The theme this year is Resilient Shorelines for Rising Tides, and um, I think it's going to be a fabulous conference. We've got over 200 presentations and posters uh, happening. So um, you know the downside is you probably be, you probably won't be able to go to all the presentations you want to see, but um, there'll certainly be plenty of options. Um, we've got some really good keynote speakers from the Army Corps of Engineers, from the Heart Research Institute uh, at UT, uh, Texas A&M. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. We have got a lot of exhibitors. Um, we've already got over uh, two dozen staff from the Army Corps of Engineers who are registered. We've got tons of folks from Texas general land office. Uh, We're hoping to have over 400 people at the conference. Wow. Uh, For all your listeners, hope you can join. It should be a good
1: time. I know it will be, Derek. I've attended the ASBPA National Conference for many years. It is a superb event. You learn a lot. There are some great professionals there. And what I'm excited about is uh, Coastal News Today and ASPN will be there. We'll have a booth. But we're also going to be recording three podcasts from the event, including the keynote speaker and a round table with the participants. Uh, we'll have a show each of the three nights. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I can tell you for the audience and the people who may have some reason, conflict schedules or otherwise, that they can't be there, we're going to hope to bring a little bit of that ASBPA National Conference to the public around the United States.
2: That's great. We're thrilled you're doing that, Peter. I think it should be should be a lot of fun to for those of us who are there to go back and, and listen in afterwards.
0: Absolutely, Derek. You know, uh, I think I met you at the national conference. I I met Jenna, who our listeners met last week, at last year's national conference in Fort Lauderdale. Um, Listen, get there. Go to the ASBPA website. Pay the fee. Do the registration. Um, By the time you hear this, early registration will have ended, but it doesn't matter. Register anyway. Be there. We would love to see you at the the, uh, conference.
2: I guess and I, uh, if I can, I want to just put in a quick plug for the field trip because I'll, I'll say I've actually never been to Galveston myself. Um, and I am just so excited to go on the field trip. Galveston is probably the home of one of the original icons of coastal engineering with the Galveston seawall. Right. I mean, the whole island was literally raised after yep. the devastating hurricane, the most devastating natural disaster in U.S. history. That's correct. The um, 1900 so got, I, storm. Yep. So they literally raised the island. So you'll get a chance to see that. Um, they've recently done a tremendous amount of new beach work in front of the seawall, so they're they're putting back they're making this beach town a beach town again by actually rebuilding the beaches, so you're going to get a chance to see that yep. and, and looking forward it is uh, the potential site of the somewhat controversial Ike Dike, which would uh, right. could stop storm surge coming in the um, Galveston ship channel on the Houston ship channel um, and so you'll get a chance to see what that is so you're really looking at yeah. um the past the present and potentially the future of some of the most innovative and exciting coastal engineering uh challenges that we face yeah. and, and well, the good and the bad i mean each of those have, have been controversial in their own right and i think we're gonna we're gonna you know lean into that controversy and, and let folks make up their own mind right. we'll get to see the, the pros and cons of all of that
1: it's exactly the right way to look at that issue uh I, you know, I went to college there at AM at Galveston when I was doing my marine biology training. Um, and I think that I'm so glad you brought up the field trip. I think that's led by Ruben Trevino, the director of beach operations for the city, uh, uh, for the Galveston County Park Board of Trustees, one of uh, the young, brilliant minds on the, on the coast of the United States. I think he's a great beach manager, very, very smart, runs that beach restoration program, uh, yeah, spending a day in Galveston with Ruben Trevino is worth the time, and I think that that happens on the thirtieth,
2: doesn't it? Uh, is it the thirtieth? Yeah, it's gonna. It, no, that's actually gonna be uh, November, 2nd, so that'll November be the prime, second. So November second. I'm prime. sorry. Yeah.
1: Great. So if you're at the conference, that's sign up. The registration is online at www.asbpa.org. The national conference, Galveston, Texas. October thirtieth, we hope to see everybody down in
0: Galveston. Now, listen, uh, the conference is great, Derek. We are absolutely looking forward to it. Um, but in the meantime, we wanted to get you on the show and introduce you to our listeners and uh, get to get to hear what you're thinking about for your uh, much anticipated podcast, "The Capital Beach," which will deal with. Federal coastal policy. So, what are you thinking about, Derek, for your show?
2: Yeah, uh, well, I'm excited to do it. Uh, I, I spent a bunch of time at the actual Capitol building or around the Capitol building, um, talking to uh, Hill staffers, both on the Senate and the House side, and and certainly spent a good deal of time working with various federal agencies, whether it's the Army Corps of Engineers or NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency. Um, and so, I you know I, I get a chance to talk about coastal policy uh, with those people who make coastal policy, and, and certainly I we have our own, ASBPA has our own particular spin on it, and we're advocating for certain certain policies, um, but I'm really excited to share some of that with our listeners, to share uh, what's happening in Washington, D.C. with the people who are making it happen. Um, so, Capitol Beach, a little play on the Capitol Beat. Uh, I'm not quite a reporter, but I'll get to play a, a radio reporter for for this podcast, um, so excited to share that, and uh, we're going to talk a lot about a lot of different different issues. Um, certainly, uh, funding appropriations uh, is always a big issue. The federal budget is a big provider of funding for, for coastal, uh, coastal restoration, coastal research, coastal management, all those kind of things. So we'll talk a bit about that. We'll talk about um, legislative policy. So whether that's the Water Resources Development Act. Uh, which is an every-two-year legislation that deals with all things Army Corps and water. We may get into some specific uh, funding bills, whether it's a Living Shorelines bill or a, a Coastal Loans Act. Um, we might talk a little bit about regulatory reform. Uh, we're big supporters of uh, regulations that protect our natural resources, but also recognize that some of those regulations can hinder coastal projects. So how do we strike that balance, and how do we make sure that coastal projects aren't being... Delayed from now into eternity uh, due to regulations. So we'll talk some about that, uh, and you know whatever whatever issues are hot at the time. I'm, I'm hoping we can have some some timely podcasts talking about timely issues.
1: Well, a lot a lot happens in in the nation's capital that affects American shoreline. Derek, I know it's a an area of great interest to coastal communities all around the United States. We're so glad to have you at the wheel. I did want to point out. I like the. I love the name of the Capital Beach podcast, and I want to say to the audience: None of the podcast hosts we have uh, uh, who have joined the network are journalists or reporters, and there's a reason for that. What, Derek? What I'm happy to know is that you're an expert in the ways and means of Washington D.C., particularly on the coastal side, and uh, we'll all learn how to handle the microphone, but uh, what you can't teach is knowledge, uh, the kind of knowledge and experience that you have. So I think you're a great host and I'm really glad you're online with us.
0: Absolutely. And I would just add to that um, that on ASPN, uh, as our listeners are no doubt aware by now, uh, our job is to provide to you a tapestry that shows the interconnections and interwovenness of the coastal of coastal communities. And there's just no way to have that discussion without uh, having a voice covering the federal beat, uh, the capital Beach. And so, Derek, uh, you fill a, an incredibly important role here at the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and I'll tell you, your show sounds fascinating.
2: Uh, thanks. I, I hope it is. I think we'll, we'll try to get some really cool guests on, um, as I said, the sort of the people who are Doing the work, you know, we'll certainly see if we can get some uh, some names that might be recognizable, whether whether it's members of Congress or, or um, you know, sort of senior uh, officials in the agencies and administration. Um, but what I'm really excited to is talking to the people who are actually um, experts on the on the policy and doing the work. You know, the, the committee staff, um, the the sort of mid level managers and the mid level staff at agencies that know. Coastal policy and coastal planning, real, real well, um, and can really dive into some of the weeds. So uh, we'll try to make sure that everything is explained, and we're not we're not going into the weeds without sort of providing that context of what it's for. But um, if you're a wonk or, or aspire to be a wonk, I think this will be a, a good show for you. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, Derek. Well, I think that we all have a little wonk in our hearts. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be a wonk,
1: really? When you come right down to it, I, I always thought it was a winning strategy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know. I, I want to, I before we get into the wonky stuff, Derek, and I, I know that uh, uh, when you're talking about federal policy, that is a, a deep well, but uh, one of the things that I think is important for us to uh, cover when we're introducing our hosts is to learn a little bit more about you and your background and, and perhaps how you became interested in, in coastlines. Uh, Derek, uh, why don't you give us a little background? Where are you from and when did you fall in love with the coast?
2: Gosh. Yeah. So I'm from, uh, New York city, uh, born and raised in New York city. Um, but I, I, had the great privilege of, um, spending most of my summers growing up out on the East end of Long Island on a, on a town called Shelter Island. Um, Shelter Island is a, a little island, uh, between the North and South fork of Long Island. So, um, it is in fact sheltered, uh, by, by the two, uh, the two forks of Long Island. Um, and there's uh, half a dozen beaches on there. Um, they're all bay beaches and so none of them are ocean facing. So they're all, uh, you know, small surf, low energy beaches, which are absolutely fabulous when you're, when you're small. Um, and so I've got some, uh, eight millimeter home footage video of, uh, of me as an infant playing in, in, um, playing in the beaches. So I, I think my first real beach experience was at gosh four months of age or so. Um, and, uh, you can see from the smile on my face that I was enjoying it then. I think I always have. Um, so whether it's, you know, just hanging out on the beach and and looking for hermit crabs when you're little to, you know, reading or walking or
0: just playing in the surf, it's always been always really enjoyed that. Um, I I know exactly what you mean, man, that I, I was fortunate enough to grow up, uh, near, uh, the beach in Southern California and, uh, share a similar, uh, memories when i was very young of being on the beach on the shoreline and being overwhelmed and overcome by the all the different marine life and the waves and the water and the sand and the plants and the driftwood and what's washed up on shore maybe there's a dead animal over there i mean who knows but it was all fascinating and it i I mean for me i i know that it uh, instilled a, an initial curiosity uh, that that led to an interest in uh, marine biology and kind of wanting to pursue a career down this road. And I know, Peter, your, your story is, is similar. Yeah, well, my mine is worse, Jared, because my
1: dad was in the Air Force, was a fighter pilot, and we moved everywhere, but we never lived near the ocean. Uh, I... My, my, my my attraction to the to the to the ocean was was through Jacques Cousteau uh, documentaries back in the seventies. If you remember the Cousteau Society and the Calypso and uh, and all of those great shows, I I was a huge fan of all of that. And even though I never lived near the ocean, uh, I went to the coast and studied marine biology, and I'm kind of glad I did. But I think mine was about Jacques Cousteau. I wish I I wish i would actually gotten to put my toes in the sand, but uh, I never
2: did. I Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> I don't think Tyler and I specifically remember the 1970s Jacques
1: Cousteau. <laughs> Come on, they were great. John, I'll tell you, YouTube. Son Gene, I mean, you know, the Calypso. I mean, you know, John Denver wrote the song. It was fantastic. Our
0: listeners, uh, if for our younger listeners who might not have had Peter's experience, go onto YouTube and watch some of these old. Clips from the old films. There, it is too much. These Frenchie's mm-hmm. in their speedos, all tan and great shape, right. doing you know. They have submarines and this cool boat. I mean, it's like something like out Alan of a. Was oh, it was it's absolutely Johnny out of this out of this world. But so, Derek, uh, what what brought you to ASBPA? Uh, how did that happen?
2: Yeah. Uh, so a little little roundabout. Um, so. Obviously I've always cared about the coast and I really got into the environment. Um uh, Island where I spent summers. There's a huge nature preserve run by the nature conservancy on the island, and so really got some uh, you know, in my youth got some formative education on environmental education and um, came out of college with a with a double major in political science and environmental studies, really knowing that I wanted to work on the environment, the policy arena. Um and had the fortune of uh, doing a couple different jobs, but ended up landing at National Wildlife Federation, um, where I worked for, uh, for nine years um, on a couple different issues, but really focused a lot on climate adaptation. Um, so in the uh, mid-2000s, when we were pushing to have climate legislation, a cap-and-trade uh, bill, um, I got to really narrowly focus on the adaptation section of that climate bill, so how you would... Um, take revenue from, from cap-and-trade uh, and put that towards all the things that were being impacted by climate change, so whether that was you know inland forest fires or uh, coastal regions. Um, so really got to deal a lot on that. Uh, and then, of course, when that that bill sort of went away, I was a little bit at the loose ends, but then had the great uh, opportunity to work on restoring coastal Louisiana. Um, and I'm sure as many of our listeners know or at least have heard, um, coastal Louisiana is really... Uh, ground zero for um, for sea level rise and, and coastal land loss uh, it's losing a about a football field an hour of wetlands due to a number of different reasons um, but it's it's a real coastal crisis uh, in the country and in the world um, and so worked on a uh, works for a coalition of, of different NGOs uh, including the National Wildlife Federation Environmental Defense fund natural Audubon Society Um and some local uh, Louisiana groups, uh, Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana and Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation. Um, I, I started that shortly after the oil spill, um, and so there was a lot of attention being paid. And one of our big uh, campaign um, efforts was to make sure that the funding that BP would have to pay to for the fine, the fines and penalties BP would have to pay for the oil spill would Actually, go back to restoration, it wouldn't just go to the general treasury, um, according to the oil pollution act. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. The fines and penalties would just go to the general treasury, and we said this is you know an unprecedented event, it should go to restoration. Um, we're largely successful on that. The restore mm-hmm. act, yeah, uh, together with uh, the money that was going to NIFWIP, really directed that funding to go to Gulf Coast restoration, huge achievement. Um, uh, so it was working on that, and actually, so a lot of the 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 work that I was doing was shifting from a D.C. policy focus where we were trying to get Congress to pass legislation, we were trying to set up funding at NIFWIP to really the implementation side. Um, so uh, I actually came pretty close to moving down to Louisiana from Washington, D.C. I've been in D.C. for about 10 years and my wife and I thought, you know, we love New Orleans. It's a fun, fun town. We thought it'd be fun to take a, take a couple of years to live in New Orleans. Um, but then I heard about this opening at American Shore and Beach Preservation Association and figured might as well, you know, throw my hat in the ring. And, and uh, I think there uh, they found my experience in coastal wetland policy um, sort of new and refreshing and something that they were looking to add to the, the history of beach policy. Um, and and so I was hired and it's been uh, that was about three and a half years ago. And it's been a great three and a half years sort of working to advance beach policy and then also blending in the, the coastal not taking beach policy, looking beyond just beaches, but actually engaging on coastal policy and on climate adaptation and some of those issues that are, you know, front and center for all beach communities.
1: Wow. Well, I just got to say, it's a great story and a great background to host a show like the Capitol Beach podcast. I think having been down in the trenches, worked at the state level, worked on, uh, restoration I do think you guys did a great job on the restore act it made a huge difference to people that I've worked with in the past and I I know the state of Texas is very happy to have the 40.5 million dollars are receiving out of that program it's it's a great revenue sharing uh, program that's going to make a big difference on coastal communities around the Gulf the other thing I wanted to pick up and in the climate adaptation uh, work that you did with the National Wildlife Federation back in the day um, is a topic that has continued to rise to the surface, if I could say it that way, in the United States. Uh, and the cap-and-trade policy originally came out of a conservative think tank, if I'm not mistaken, didn't it?
2: Uh, I don't remember what think tank, but, you know, your original, the original bill was um, McCain-Lieberman. You know, mm-hmm. you had a, a Republican and a very conservative Democrat putting out the original legislation. Um right. And uh, on the, similar on the, the House side, there was a Republican and a Democrat, but both were very moderate uh, members putting forward the legislation. Um, and it's really been, it's frankly, been depressing to see how uh, political and, and, and polarized it's gotten because there's, you know, it, it wasn't. You know, if you look at this 10, 15 years ago, it was it was something that really the moderates were working on, not one party or the other, so...
0: Yeah, Derek, you know, that's, that's actually one of the things that um, I have in our notes for discussion a later, and we'll, we'll circle back to it, but I am curious to know how today's political climate uh, is affecting your work. Uh, but uh, back, back to your story now, so uh, you applied for the job, uh, you were hired, and that brought you to Washington, D.C., and you've been working with ASBPA for three and a half years now, Tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing over that period of time and uh, the direction you want to take the organization going
2: forward. Sure, yeah. And and so I've actually been in D.C. for close to 15 years now, so I've been here when I started ASBPA. So it's been, you know, it's home now. Um, uh, Direction of ASBPA, um, I think one thing that I was brought on to do and we continue to do is, is, as I mentioned, sort of expand out uh, the vision of, our coastal work beyond just beaches. Um, folks talk about embracing the shores in our name. We are American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, not just beaches. Um, so we certainly have a history of being the, the go-to organization that talks about beach nourishment, um, perhaps to a fault. I mean, I think there are there have been times in our past where we have sort of said beach nourishment is the answer. What's the, you know, what's the question? Um, mm-hmm. And I think recognizing that uh, beach nourishment is one very, very important tool in the toolbox for how communities can um, protect and preserve their coastline. Uh, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, you know, there, there are certainly even going to be times when hardened structures, uh, which we normally don't think of as sort of the environmentally or, or sustainable or resilient way to go, there are going to be time when hard structures are absolutely necessary. But there's also, you know, living shorelines and marsh restoration and marsh creation. And um, so we're really trying to embrace those. Um, I think our niche, ASBPA's niche, is really the sediment. Um, so you've got some terrific organizations out there who we partner with very closely uh, who are looking at estuary and restoration um, and and marshes and, and oyster reefs and um, coral reefs down in, uh, in Florida. Uh, and I think our real niche is those sediment dynamics. How does sand, how does mud where does it move? How does it stay in the system? How can we make sure we are using that sort of fundamental building block uh, of, of coastal land building? Um, so continuing to look at coastal sediment, broadening it out to uh, sort of the estuarine and the marsh system. Um, and then one thing that I'm particularly excited about uh, that's launching at our conference this year, which we mentioned earlier, uh, is connecting in with beach operations folks. So this mm-hmm. is actually putting us a little bit outside of that conservation um policy and science policy. Uh, but the folks that are in charge of managing and hiring lifeguards that are have to deal with you know litter and trash on the beach. That you know what happens if a if a, a dead whale or a dead dolphin washes up or you know look at what's going on in Florida with the red tide. They've had you know hundreds, if not thousands of dead fish wash up on the beach. How do you handle that? No. Um, those are those are often like the parks and recreation folks rather than the city managers or coastal engineers. Um, And so I think we're looking to uh, figure out ways to appeal to those folks and and make sure that our scientists, our geologists are understanding the needs of, you know, the people that just want to make sure that there's no litter on the beach. And and likewise, the people that just want to make sure there's no litter on the beach understand, you know, how to manage a beach for sea turtle lasting or how to manage a beach to provide uh, risk reduction. So um, those are just a couple areas that we're looking into.
1: Well, I, you know, as a longtime member of ASBPA, I really like the expanded direction. I think the the topics that you're looking at on sediment dynamics or beach operations particularly are central to management issues at the local government level where Tyler and I have worked for years Uh the beach ops folks deal with parking and revenues, and I'll tell you when we are working. We just finished working with Charlotte County, Florida, on the financing plan for their shoreline management program, creating new tax bases and assembling the revenues to match with the state uh, DEP guys. Uh, let me tell you that that those beach ops and parkings and revenue and hotel occupancy taxes and all of that local management of the shoreline, both in terms of access, in terms of revenues, is. A great topic for ASBPA. I do think there are practices around the country that work well. I think ASBPA can be that go-between to help uh, spread the word about what works and what, what doesn't. It's, it's a really good topic for the organization. And I also wanted to, to tell you that I think your emphasis on sediment dynamics is, is a very powerful position. I mean, ASBPA has a deep technical bench and a deep technical background. This is not foreign to the organization at all, but When I think about the sediment dynamic issue, and and I'll tell you, uh, uh, Derek, this is something we talk to the public about when we're trying to raise taxes for beach restoration and beach nourishment, is I try to explain to folks when they say, gee whiz, if we pump this onto the beach, it doesn't stay. That common question you get in every community. And what I tell them is, listen, we're going to hire the same people that the dredging operators hire for the channel right down the road here. And nobody says to the Port of Miami or the Port of Tampa or the Port of Houston or LA or any of the major federally maintained deep water ports, why are we dredging this channel? Because it's just going to fill back up. That question makes no sense in that context because no one expects it to, the sediment to stay in the same place in a liquid environment. And when I tell folks, look, we're just buying the different end of the pipe. The dredgers and the channel maintainers buy the front end of the pipe that sucks up the sand. That's their end of the boat. We're buying the discharge end. We're paying the guy and we're buying the discharge place and where we want it to go. But it's the same equipment and it's, it's repeated for the same reasons. And trying to get the public to understand sediment dynamics is a huge thing. And I think it would be great if ASPPA leaned on that issue a little
2: bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that we do, we've always, or we are trying to do at ASBPA is educate the public, um, or at least the, the, the manager so that they can educate the public on the fact that so many beaches around the country are engineered. Beaches aren't, I think Americans have this idyllic-ass thought of beaches being all natural and, and, and you know, the way nature intended. And, and the fact is they're mostly managed. A, a little anecdote on that. I was A couple years ago, um, I was out in Los Angeles uh, for a friend's wedding, and we were sitting at uh, Will Rogers State Park in in Los Angeles. um, Beautiful. And we were literally sitting at the sort of uh, right, the foot of a groin, so right along a groin. And someone who was from Los Angeles, someone who was from there, it was their local beach, one of the people that was hosting us, was talking about how this was you know a completely all natural Los Angeles beach and i was sort of like you know i hate to break it to you but there's a groin right there this is not <laughs> this is not the way nature intended and the
1: management structure you're sitting on right here <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah um but you know it goes to say that people you know people love their beaches and particularly whatever your local beach is you think is the way a beach should be mm-hmm. um and i think making sure that people understand that, people have all sorts of different values around what a beach should look like and, and that doesn't make any, any one of them right or wrong. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's what it is. And and that they're, you know, they're engineered, they're infrastructure. I mean, you, playgrounds, you know, jungle gyms and and, and, uh, and slides don't appear naturally and, and frankly, neither do beaches right. in many cases. So, well, that's, um, I
1: think that's certainly going to be true in the future. If the predictions of sea level rise are true, we are going to be in to a very long and complex discussion about how to maintain
0: sandy beaches in America. Yep. yep. Absolutely. And, and as I always say, you know, the American shoreline is the most dynamic geographic feature of our nation. So, uh, and it happens to be tremendously valued by all of the different stakeholders that value it. And, uh, that's what the American shoreline podcast network seeks to cover. And uh, boy, ASBPA is all over it. And Derek, I just think you're doing a great job. And, and I, I want to know uh, in your time working on the American shoreline with ASBPA, what uh, trends you see uh, the American shoreline going in, uh, both from a federal perspective, but also just more broadly. I mean, obviously there's this overarching discussion of, of climate change, of sea level rise. That's kind of lurking in the back. Um, obviously, you know the, what you just talked about with beach operations um, is heavily, like you mentioned before, the blue-green algae bloom, algal bloom in southwest Florida uh, created a tremendous shoreline uh, disaster, in fact, for for that area that, Im- that impacted the tourism industry and fisheries and so on. So I, I would love to get your thoughts on some trends that you've
2: identified. Yeah, well, certainly we could spend every episode of ASPN talking about the impacts of of climate change and sea level rise and storm surge and storm intensity.
0: Which we will not do.
2: (laughs) But there is no shortage of of specific issues related to that. And I think how communities handle that is going to be certainly a challenge uh, coming up throughout. Um, Another one, Peter brought up the, the sort of funding work that you guys have also done. And I think looking at how coastal, whether you want to call it adaptation, whether you want to call it restoration... Um, preservation, but how, how coasts are funded, I think, is going to be a real interesting topic over the coming years. And we've already seen a shift. Um, uh, there is a lot of federal funds. Most of it comes after disasters, which is probably not the most efficient way to do it, but it is what politically works. Um, but how local communities are going to pay into that. Um, and then, even beyond just local communities, what role does private industry play in that? Um, and that's really where you get into some of these innovative financing. I mean, the fact that you've got you know, J.P. Morgan and the Rockefeller Foundation starting to look at um, how, coast, how uh, coastal restoration is going to be financed in the future is really telling, Um I, I believe you guys have a, a separate show on, on financing and funding.
1: We, we we will have it. It'll be covered uh, extensively on the local government podcast, the name of cool. which is open for debate now at coastalnewstoday.com dot <laughs> com and on the uh, Facebook page for Coastal News Today. But the funding issues, uh, I think, you know, obviously we're involved in that uh, in Todd and I's work with ASBP on chairing the local government working group, uh, funding working group. And uh, it is a tough problem. And it, it, when, when we look down the road, what I see is, of course, I think what ASVPA is perceiving, that there's going to be greater financial pressure at the local level uh, over time. And yep. I think the emergence of potential private third-party funders into the game of shoreline management, shoreline restoration through green bonds and other emerging funding uh, devices is really uh, going to be... Uh, just one of those topics we're going to have to track and learn as it develops. And so the cost issues, I think that, that trend is, is huge. Um, I think the coastal, coastal adaptation, uh, issue broadly speaking is coming down the line on the American shoreline. I'm starting to see more intense discussions around coastal energy, both offshore oil and gas and wind. Um, so boy, there's just, it's the one thing, uh, Derek, when we were putting together, relaunching Coastal News today, and putting together the network, is there is no shortage of things to talk about on the American shoreline. It is just overwhelming how many topics are going on and how important they are.
2: Yep, no question. Um, One other uh, emerging issue, I think Tyler called it, uh, that I'll, I'll mention that I think is something that I'm looking to address on my show. It's a little bit more niche. It's not quite as broad as climate change or you know, how do we fund restoration, right. um, but is uh, regional sediment management and how do you beneficially use dredge material? Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, uh, there are a lot of different takes we can do on this, um, but one sort of specific example is in uh, the Water Resources Development Act from 2016. Uh, there was an authorization for a pilot project. Um, this was section 1122 that authorized 10 pilot projects for the beneficial use of dredge material at full federal expense. Um, and we can get into this a little bit, but the idea is, is uh, that navigation projects that are being dredged, um, according to the federal standard, according to federal law, they have to get rid of that dredge material as cheaply as possible.
1: Right. Um, so often, often that not really means, sound, right, the federal standard.
2: Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, if the cheapest way to get rid of that is to just take it offshore and dump it offshore... And that's what the Corps has to do. Right. Now, local communities can, can pay to have it placed on their beach, right. um, but the feds are just taking it offshore and dumping it offshore if that's the cheapest thing to do. Um, and so uh, this pilot project um, authorized the Army Corps of Engineers to actually use it beneficially, use that material beneficially if um, you know, for an authorized project, even if it was a little bit more expensive. So if you're saying, okay... It may be a little bit more expensive to place it on the beach, but you're going to create all these, you know, great benefits to risk yeah. reduction or to habitat value. Um, the feds can go ahead and, and, and pay for that. Yeah. Um, let, and me, let, me,
1: let me let me jump in on that before we go yeah. to the next emerging issue because yeah, it 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 is absolutely nonsense that we do not fully take advantage of beneficial use. And I think if I were explaining it to my grandmother, she would say, why do they pump it offshore? And then you go pay somebody else to go get it and bring it back. And it has to do with, when you think about it in these simple terms, the dredge plant, the ship, you can sell both ends of the pipe. You can sell the cutter head end to create the deep channel to the depth that you want. That's the navigation side of the same project with the same material flowing through the same pipe and then sell the discharge end through beneficial use, it is absolutely financially uh, imperative that this be sorted out. And I think all of the coastal practitioners, Derek, and you know, ASBPA, the engineers who work on this, the local governments who try to tackle shoreline erosion problems, um, get incredibly frustrated when the federal standard is thrown up and say, you know what, we just can't do it. The law says we have to do a half-ass yep. project, and uh, if yep. we can all work together to change that, uh, we're going to save money, get better results, and make more people happy. And boy, every elected official I know wants to save money, make people happy, and have better
2: voters. So yep. that should be possible. It should this be. is absolutely an emerging and an issue that's that's happening. This pilot project they authorized ten. They gave about a month for projects to be proposed, and in yeah. one month. 94 projects were proposed So wow. like, this is around the country. That's so crazy. this is clearly, um, you know, clearly an issue of interest to local communities. Uh, in of 18, the bill that's on the, in Congress right now, they propose doubling that to 20, which is great, but still 20 is, I don't know what my math is exactly, but about 20 per, is still well short of 94. Well, it's a third.
1: It's uh, a third of the first submission. It's less than a third, about 28%. So... Um,
2: you know, so this is, this is a hot topic. I think we'll be getting into it. NSBPA um, has, has been working on this for a long, long time conceptually, but I think we really need to push this from being uh, a regional sediment management as a concept to actually uh, regional sediment management as a, as a practice, and more than that, a requirement. There are some core districts around the country that are doing a tremendous job at sort of looking across uh, coastal and navigation budget lines, you don't need to just manage the coast in a silo. You don't need to just say this is a navigation project or it's a coastal restoration project. Right. You can those together. Right. But we need to make sure that every coastal district is doing that. Well, you know, uh-huh. Eric,
0: it, it goes right back to what you were saying or, earlier about ASBPA really being an organization that focuses on coastal sediment. Mm-hmm. For, yep. for, for those of our listeners who are not coastal engineers and, and policy experts and professionals, uh, maybe some of the folks out there who just, uh, own a beach house or live near the beach. You might you, you you are probably aware that on your beach the sand tends to move in one, from w- in one direction to another up the beach down to the other direction. And you can imagine if you have a channel artificially cut into that beach uh, that is dr- the sand that naturally moves fills into that channel. And what Derek is saying is that they will the federal government will maintain that channel if it's a federal channel. And that the idea here is to take that sediment that gets trapped in the channel and put it back onto the beach where it would naturally be anyway. So this is this is smart, but it does beg a question Derek that I want I want to ask you, which is uh, obviously these projects, it's great to see' WERDA expanding this program. But do you believe that the federal government has the will or capacity to continue to? Uh, fund shoreline projects like these? Uh, I would like to get your thoughts on, on funding federally and kind of the direction that's going.
2: Yeah. Um, good question. I, I believe it does. I mean, if you look at, uh, unfortunately it doesn't in the sort of proactive sense that we would like. I think if you think about how you'd maintain your home, you think about, you know, you need to put a new coat of paint on every couple of years. You need to, um, Need to you know keep keep your your appliances up to date. But well, the fact is, you, you tend to wait until things break, and then you then you go and replace them. And that's the same with the, the federal government. you see a lot of money being spent after disasters, um, and that's the case that we're seeing right now. Uh, earlier this spring, Congress passed a um, 2017 or was it 2018? But the 2018 bipartisan budget act, which included um, over $17 billion to the Army Corps of Engineers for flood control, uh, for flood risk reduction project studies um, in response to the terrible 2017 hurricane season. So this was money that was going to not just rebuild from Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria, but actually try to make some of those communities more resilient than they were before the storm. Mm -hmm. And so that passed Congress this spring and really in the past month or two, we started to see the core actually take this up. Um, so Tyler, to your point about funding, yes, there is an appetite for it. Unfortunately that appetite typically is after the disaster, um, rather than before. Yeah. I Uh, I do have
0: a follow-up question on that. And I, I have this, uh, I've had this pinned in my mind. Um, but you know, one of the, one of the things that happened, I happened to be at a family reunion, uh, right in the aftermath of Harvey. And uh, I was asked by a relative uh, who lived inland and in an inland area uh, if, uh, you know, who's going to be paying for this? And I said, well, we we all will. The, United, the taxpayers of the United States are going to be flowing this bill. And I'm wondering if, I mean, obviously, coastlines are vulnerable to... Uh, major storm events and hurricanes. And this is, is, is there any sort of backlash coming from uh, non-hurricane-threatened or storm-threatened states? I mean, obviously we have Sandy. Uh, just in the in the recent rear view, um, I, I would just, I would love to get your thoughts on, on how the various state coalitions respond to these kind of big
2: payouts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly, and certainly you've got your sort of Tea Party, fiscal, you know, government shouldn't be spending money. Uh, but the 2017 uh, or the 2018 bill dealing with 2017 disasters tied in um, wildfire assistance with, uh, with coastal assistance. So, yeah. you know, and even the states that weren't hit by wildfires last year could see themselves being hit by wildfires. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and certainly there's, you know, you, you, you go maybe, OK, well, maybe the Midwestern states, they don't really get... Fires and, and and coastal disasters, um, but you don't have to go back too far to see some of the flooding in Cedar Rapids uh, and, and Iowa City. That's right. Uh, so they have flood disasters. And um, St. Louis, I think, was a crop insurance program. Yes. Yeah, St. You St. Know?
1: Louis, the flooding in St. Louis on the Mississippi was it two thousand three or four? Yeah, inland flooding disasters. We're looking at the fire break problems in California, but also across. West Texas right now. There have been major floods and fires this year in in West Texas, up in Oklahoma. I think what's interesting to me in the long run, when you talk about the 2018 federal disaster supplemental, the $17 billion that Congress allocated to the Corps of Engineers, number one, I think that is a fantastic investment for the country to make. But number two, I think in terms of long-term policy, that's not how we want the money to flow. There's something, you know, as I think you've said, the, the trick in D.C. is we, we're good at reacting to crisis, but we're not good at reacting in the planning uh, and foreseeing what we need to be doing. Yep. But the basis to, to do it and the reason to do it and the economic justification to do it was front and center in Shore and Beach Magazine. Uh, in the Was it the spring edition or was it the summer edition that just came out? Uh, another great article and, and analysis by James Houston, uh, on the value of the American shoreline and why the investments are a positive economic return for the government at all levels. It's the truth. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So shore and beach, as you mentioned, is is the peer reviewed journal that ASBPA puts out quarterly. So we do four issues. That was, I believe the technically the spring issue, right. um, volume number two, Yeah. Uh, James Houston, who's on our uh, president's advisory board. He's um, the director emeritus of uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, Engineering Research and Development uh, Council, ERDIC. Um, and he's done a lot of work recently talking about the economic value of beaches. And some of the numbers are staggering. I mean, more people visit American visit American beaches than visit all our national parks combined. So it's a huge tourism draw. Um, it provides value uh, to uh, coastal communities, not just through the tourism, but through the sort of um, supply chain of uh, industry. So, if you're a you know if you're a home builder uh, or a or a, a cook, if you, you know if you're a restaurateur, you you're feeding people that not just come to the coast, but you're also feeding people that live on the coast. So, there's a lot of economic value provided by the coast. Um, Dr. Houston talks about that, yeah, uh, and that that leads to tax dollars. So. You know, it's, it is a little bit of an investment in, in um, investing in the coast is an investment in new tax revenue.
1: It pencils out, and uh, the numbers of visitors are staggering. Uh, when I was working in North Carolina in on Topsail Island, in fact, that was significantly impacted by uh, Hurricane Florence uh, on the 14th of September this year, uh, we... Explain to the public, when you look at the visitorship numbers for the National Seashores in North Carolina, it's very hard to get visitorship counts, but the National Seashores do because there's an entry gate into the National Seashores. They keep count. In one summer, the National Seashores of North Carolina outdraw every NFL game for the entire season, including the playoffs. And think about that. We will dump a billion dollars onto a football stadium in public finance football facilities as a recreational investment, as an economic investment, without a lot of hesitation. And in one state and in one set of national seashore beaches, we're drawing more people than the entire National Football League in a year. So I, I just think that the the justification for federal involvement and for federal action and the work that you guys do in D.C. is solid. It is There are reasons why I think it is hard to make that case, um, which I guess we don't need to go into, but I'll tell you one of the reasons I think it's a difficult case to make. And I call it the Hawaiian shirt syndrome. And by that I mean people perceive the coast to be a rather frivolous place. They think you sit on the back deck, you got a drink in your hand, you wear a bad shirt, you never wear a tie, and you're not doing anything productive. And when you think about that, if that's your characterization of the American shoreline, you won't think that the investment makes sense, but it is such a misnomer and such a misunderstanding of what's going on on the American shoreline that these investments, we have to think of them in strict environmental terms. We have to think about how many people. I was in Tybee Island, Georgia this summer, and a tiny little town, great location. Most of these little beach towns that I've gone to and work in will have an off season population of two, three, or 4,000 or smaller. And a summertime population of, of about 40,000 or 30,000. Oak Island, North Carolina is a good example. These things are massive. And trying to figure out how to get 40,000 people in America to do anything at the same time, is pretty hard to do. Beaches, do that. And that's why I think the work of ASBPA and, and what you're going to be talking about on the Capital podcast, the Capital Beach podcast, is really important to our listeners.
2: Yeah, and this sort of, one of the issues, another issue that ASBPA works on, the kind of thing that we might get into in in Capitol Beach Podcast, is again, sort of taking that concept and putting the wonky spin on it, um, is how Congress, uh, or how the Army Corps of Engineers, determines the benefit-cost ratio uh, for whether or not to invest in a coastal project. So every federally authorized beach project um, gets funded based on its benefit-cost ratio, but currently, the only benefits that can be included yeah. um, are flood risk reduction benefits or, right. or, or uh, reduction from coastal storm damages. Yeah. Um, that's because that's why they are authorized. The beach project It's here. You're building a wide beach and high dunes to protect the community from flooding, which is great. Absolutely. But you have tremendous ancillary benefits um, to that. You've got all the recreation and, and tourism value. You've got ecological value. You build out a wider beach. You're... You're building out habitat for sea turtles, for dunes, for other um, for other wildlife, uh, and and of course all this recreation value that we're talking about, but none of that gets counted. The only thing that gets counted is the, is the benefits for flood risk reduction, and you're comparing that to the full cost. So one of the things ASBPA has been pushing is saying, okay, let's let's take a broader view of what those benefits are um, and figure out how we included that. And that's one thing that uh, you know we can get into that. There was policy in um, the Water Resources Development Act this year that the was pushing for that would have actually changed the way the BCR um, is the benefit-cost ratio. We shortened the BCR because Mm -hmm. in DC everything is an acronym. Um, But uh, that would have changed that. It ended up not making it into the final bill. The final bill actually has a study um, that would sort of – an independent review of how the core – determines their benefit cost ratio what should be included so that's the kind of thing that i'm really looking forward to getting into Absolutely. um you know, diving into what, what does this mean what are the, you know what does a, a a government study on army corps benefit cost ratio so what what does that mean well it has real life implications for what beach projects get funded or what other projects get funded um, and so talking about that and trying to trying to make the the wonky, uh, both understandable and, and and fun, and you know have real life impacts. I think is really what Capitol Beach is going to be about.
0: Yeah, I'm curious to know, Derek, when you're walking uh, the, the halls of the Capitol and floating these ideas, which sound great to me, uh, how are they received? Uh, do you have? Is there a block of opposition that you've identified? Uh, can you kind of sketch out the political landscape just roughly for our listeners? <laughs>
2: Uh, sure, maybe. Um, <laughs> or, or maybe you
1: don't want to. Yeah. Uh,
2: so I would say, we were talking earlier about the partisan dynamics. I, I do feel like on a lot of these coastal kind of issues that are really looking at some of the Army Corps of Engineers, whether it's beneficial use of dredge material, or benefit cost ratios, or, or those kind of policy things, it typically tends to be more regionally based than partisan based. So you're mm-hmm. not looking at um, Republican versus Democrat you're really looking at how uh, coastal members compared to inland members, um, which is nice. I mean, I work very closely with both Republicans and Democrats. Word I've mentioned the Water Resource Development Act. I've mentioned a couple times. Um, that is uh, that's a, a hugely bipartisan bill. I mean, you don't hear that hugely bipartisan bill, um, but uh, in Congress, it's you know it's passed the House by voice vote, meaning there was literally no opposition to it in the House, so they came to agreement. Um, the committees, the House, and sorry, Republican and Democrats were really well together at a committee level. Um, and I think you'll see similar uh, similar kind of passage. That's
1: interesting to hear. And let me, uh, Derek, I think the, that you're quite right. The, these issues do not break down e- easily on partisan lines. Uh, a lot of the coastal communities that we've worked in to increase local taxes to pay for beach restoration are conservative communities. That goes mm-hmm. 60 70% on the conservative side in the elections. We, we know who we're talking to. And there is a reason why, uh, I think, the kinds of conversations that we are having at the local level about increased taxes can be received in a political environment that would generally, we would all think, would be absolutely um, unprepared to have that discussion and in opposition to the proposal. And it it has to do with the fact that there is a third-party forcing mechanism in the conversation. It happens to be the ocean. And when people look at the actual threat and experience it firsthand and they see their beach getting smaller and smaller and they see their property values declining and they see their rental income declining and they're seeing people who can now go onto the Internet and find an Airbnb house in any beach town they want to find it, they understand that the condition of the shoreline is an economic and safety issue firsthand. And that understanding is not subject to being persuaded out of. And In other words, you can't convince the ocean not to keep coming. You can't convince the waves. They don't listen. They don't care what we think about it. They're going to do what they do. And I think that drives the conversation away from partisan understandings of Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and progressives and all of that to a more pragmatic understanding of the value of the resource that we're discussing, what are the most effective strategies to respond and how we have to contribute to that and how we have to share the burden across state, local, federal, private, all of that. Everyone has an interest in the shoreline. We all have to work together. That's kind of what I've seen happen. And none of that is, is driven principally by by political persuasion
2: at all. Yep, I, I agree 100%. Here. The one the one add-on to that that does, unfortunately, have a little, a little bit of a political take is, particularly amongst your, your sort of hard-right conservatives, uh, is they don't want to be seen as, advocate, as, as supporting federal spending, really, in any case. Right. So I've talked to a number of members of Congress, coastal members of Congress, who are pretty conservative Republicans, who are very supportive of funding for coastal restoration because they all the local reasons you talked about, but they'll also say, but I really don't want this to get out publicly because, yeah. because I'm, I'm, no. I'm not for federal spending. And I so understand it's that. Up.
1: I do. I understand yeah. that. I, I worked on the Hill. I worked for a congressman who is now a U.S. Senator, Ron Wyden from Oregon. And, uh, you know, when I went to D.C., I had gone to law school, I I, I got to the Hill, and uh, one of the first lessons that I learned, and it was not an easy one for me to to swallow, is that that it is an acceptable and understandable point of view for an elected official to consider how a particular point of view or position that they take affects their electability in the future. That is part of the equation of politics in America. It is designed to be that way. It's nothing to be ashamed about. And so what that does for those of us who want to advocate for a particular vote is to help them solve the political problem, help them make the case. And in Charlotte County, when we were able to bring forward to the county commissioners a raft of citizens who are going to pay increased taxes testifying in favor of the increase, what the elected officials then know is that they understand the problem, they're willing to be part of the solution, and yes, and we got a unanimous vote. And, and, and it put the onus on us and the community to to craft a solution that they can live with. And I think that's American democracy at its best. I think the elected officials are understandably leery on something that, like this. But that's not unexpected or improper, in my opinion. It just means we got to do a better job of explaining why this is the right vote.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And make sure that, all, I mean, you yeah, know, the old axiom all politics is local Right. really does it's, a, it's an axiom because it is in fact true and I think if you can point out that your constituents care about an issue you're going to get the support there um, so it's, it's a, as you said holding on us as advocates as, mm-hmm. as the coastal community to make sure that the coastal community is voicing their concern and voicing their support for things like federal funding for, for coastal restoration so.
0: absolutely and I, I would just add to that that uh, the one way that the broader coastal community can uh, help itself in advocating for uh, increased federal spending will be to, uh, as as we say, don't jump the bridge. Uh, if, if coastal communities need to step up independently and oftentimes using their own local powers uh and lo- and as you mentioned before overcoming the all- their local political challenges uh decide to manage their shoreline that will give their representative the confidence perhaps yeah. to to support a federal policy if they know that their constituents are already in Right. Um, so that's an important element there. Now, Derek, we have we have just a few minutes left, and we got a couple more subjects I'd like to cover with you. And uh, I'm just I'm just curious to know uh, if you can tell us about uh, maybe some uh, some guests that you're planning on having on on the show, and, and maybe some show ideas.
2: Sure. Um, well, I'm not going to name names because I haven't actually talked to any individuals yet. But I'm certainly interested in having. Um, folks from uh, federal agencies, you know, I think this, this show would be uh, absolutely essential to have a couple uh, core employees, if they can get sign off from their external affairs to yeah. come talk on this. Um, so I think having some folks on like that to talk about, uh, you know, really taking a deep dive into the beneficial use of dredge material. We sort of spent five or ten minutes on it here, but I think you could certainly cover a full episode. For looking here, it. Yeah, dredge, no doubt about use. it.
1: Uh, yeah, uh-huh. I think that would be great. I think what you guys did at the National Coastal Summit, was it March this year? March. Yeah. Uh, with BOEM, you had great core people at the Fish and Wildlife, all of those federal people who run those programs. I, I would love to hear a more detailed discussion with someone like yourself who knows the issues inside and out and knows how to get to the edge of the issue. Uh, there is so much to understand and learn there. I just I can't wait to hear the Capitol Beach podcast.
0: Yep. Absolutely. And, and, and let me just say uh, that that, so we, we have been talking uh, a great deal on the American Shoreline podcast about the national conference, uh, of course, coming up shortly. Uh, but what Peter just referenced is the D.C. Summit, uh, which Derek puts on as well in, in Washington in March uh, Derek, do you want to? Have you d- done any planning on the summit uh, for this coming uh, session? Do you have any future plans? Can you key us in?
2: Yeah, funny you should ask. I literally right before I got on the on the line with you guys, we were having our first kickoff call for the summit. Great. Uh, so yeah, so the summit is going to be March uh, twelfth to fourteenth this in twenty nineteen this coming year. Um, it's a time to come to DC. We'll put a bunch of, you know, wonky talking heads in front of you to tell you the latest and greatest on beach issues. Um, And then you get a chance to meet with federal agencies or go up and lobby your members of of Congress. Uh, So looking forward to that. There's a couple issues that have already sprung up as sort of hot topics this year, which we certainly don't have time to get into on this podcast, but um, might make good topics for other ones. Uh, Beach access. There's a Supreme Court case that's going to be talking about beach access. Um, And it's also, there have been issues in Florida and North Carolina and uh, Texas. So
1: that's an of The it what is it? Is it CULSA versus California Coastal Commission, uh, Martins Beach? Yeah. I believe the decision is, I think, this week. Um, Uh, I don't know. It's a CERT decision. Um, Yeah, that's huge. And then the state bills in Florida uh, on beach access. And Rob Nixon, who's another host on... Yep. On ASPN, he has got the next swell podcast, uh, is, an, is a practitioner in the trade of beach access and public and private rights line shrine. That topic itself, these it really going to be interesting to hear from you guys on no. this. And I know I, get, I would be remiss if I did not mention when we spoke to Jenna Valenta uh, last week, and she's hosting the Sea Change podcast. She's looking right. forward to. To, con- to talking to you and possibly collaborating with you on federal uh, policy discussions. Uh, we spent a very interesting uh, time talking about the national ocean policy, and uh, there's just so much happening in D.C. I think there's, our pod hosts are going to really uh, cover a lot of ground for us.
0: No doubt about yeah. it. Uh, Derek, you are doing a fantastic job uh, as the executive director of ASBPA, and we are absolutely thrilled for the Capital Beach podcast. As a reminder to everybody, uh, if you have not done so already, go to ASBPA.org and register for the National Conference in Galveston. Um, It truly promises to be fantastic, and we would love to see
2: you there. Any concluding thoughts, Derek? Yeah, we look forward to seeing you in Galveston. Our conference is going to be over Halloween, so you'll all get to see what Peter's fabulous costume is. I'm sure, right? <laughs> some kind of dead fish. It's I mean, I'm sort of doing the uh, you
1: know I'm doing the red tide costume is what I think. It's, it's very scary that costume. Um, it's a little slimy. I don't know how people are going to sit next to me, but I, but I think it's a great idea.
0: That's my plan. Um, well, we'll uh, we'll be we'll be cooking up some costume ideas and. Uh, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to the American Shoreline Podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. We'll uh, we'll be back on the air with some more great shows soon. But until then, adios.
1: Yeah. Derek, thank you very much for joining us today. and look forward to the Capital Beach podcast. Thanks a lot, Tyler. And always want to thank my sound guy, Max Miller, who makes the sound better than we, we are. So Appreciate it, Max. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.